Hello and welcome to the Money Nerds Podcast, where owning a calculator, budgeting your money, and having a net worth is actually cool. I'm your host, Whitney Hansen, and each week I'll be chatting with inspiring people to learn their secrets to financial success. Now let's dive into the show. Do you love talking about side hustles? Me too. That's why I was so excited to bring on my friend Nick Loper today to talk all things side hustles. But of course, before we dive into that, I have to share an exciting money win. Actually, one of these comes from me. So just to give you a little bit more perspective on why side hustles are so important, I recently picked up a little coffee table. It's kind of a mid-century modern one, and it is so cute, but I picked it up for $20 and I sold it for $130. That's a $110 profit. I literally did nothing to this coffee table. So this is why one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about side hustles and why I think everybody should have some type of a side hustle at some point in their life. I really do believe that. And that's why I was so excited about today's topic. Okay, so enough of that little like humble brag. I'm not trying to like say, oh, look how much money I made. I'm more trying to show you what we could be doing with our free time. And I know if you're quarantined at home, there's ways to still side hustle and do it safely so that you're not actually getting sick or whatever the case might be. But it's such a great way to go. Okay. This is the real side hustle. I saw this on the Facebook group, Manager Money Like a Boss, and my jaw hit the floor. I was so excited for her. Today's money win is from Emily. Emily says, I graduated PA school eight months ago with about $100 in my checking account after rubbing pennies together for seven years of higher education. Today, I can officially say I've paid off $12,000 in debt, the remaining on my car and a small private education alone since I started working. Now on to the big one, my six-figure student loan, hoping to have that paid in five years instead of 10. Thank you, Whitney, for all of your advice. I love your podcast. Hashtag money win. Emily, okay, two things. I'm honored that you love the podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. It means the world to me to see that you're listening and applying the advice that we talk about in the show. But more than anything, I am so crazy proud of you for paying off your debt. I know, I mean, we all know lifestyle creep is a very real thing. So to see that you have stayed focused and stayed true to your your whole goal of just paying off your debt. Uh, it's so inspiring. I am so proud of you. And to go from $100 in your checking account and scraping by to being able to pay off your debt and actually survive a little bit, that's got to feel so great. So congratulations for all of your education, your hard work, and paying off your small student loan and car. I am so crazy proud of you. Okay, don't forget, if you want to share your money wins with me and get support from other money nerds, Manage Your Money Like a Boss Facebook group, that's the place to be. And also on Instagram, you can tag me at Whitney underscore Hanson underscore co. Any money win you want to celebrate, even if it's like I saved 10 bucks on groceries, hey, I'm there to support you and cheer you on along the way. So definitely share your money wins with me. And I am your biggest fan. I love seeing what you guys are up to. All right, let's dive into a little bit of background on today's guest, Nick. Nick Loper helps people earn money outside of their day job. He's an author, online entrepreneur, and host of the award-winning Side Hustle Show podcast, which features new part-time business ideas each week. As chief side hustler at SideHustleNation.com, he loves deconstructing the tactics and strategies behind building extra income streams. I am such a fan of Nick's podcast. This was actually one of the first podcasts I ever started listening to, so I was super 
grateful. It was almost like full circle to bring him on the show and to pick his brain and learn his story. I, it was so much fun. So that was like definitely me nerding out a little bit and fangirling a little throughout this episode. I think you'll see that. <laughs> okay, here's what we talk about. We're going to dive into how Nick's side hustle led him into quitting his corporate job. We talk about what being a side hustle curator actually means his take on why people maybe don't side hustle as much, the best side hustles to start with, tips for product-based businesses, and we dive into how would you actually bring in $500 in one week? What are some of the things that you could do? I love this episode. I think it's a super important one because side hustles are life, in my opinion. I think the secret to new skills and just trying and having a good time with life, I really do believe can come from side hustles, and I'm finding that in my own life as well. All right, enough about that. Let's go ahead and dive into this episode. I think you're going to enjoy it with my friend, Nick Loper. Welcome back to another episode. Today, I'm joined by one of my longtime friends from FinCon, Nick Loper. Nick, thanks so much for hanging out. You bet, Whitney. Anytime. I think we've known each other maybe two and a half years now from FinCon. It's been great. Which was, uh, what was your first FinCon? Oh, heavens. It was Charlotte, North Carolina. Oh, same here. Okay. That was your first too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, crazy. Yeah. So we're, we're kind of long timers in that community. It, it's so much fun. But I've actually known of you even before. I don't know if I've ever shared this with you. You were one of the first podcasts I ever listened to. No joke. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you for tuning in. I loved it. I remember I was sitting because every time I it's like my morning routine, I'll make my breakfast, get my coffee, listen to my podcast. And I remember always hearing yours. And at that time, I was in a full time job. And I was thinking, how the heck do I get out of this full time job? It wasn't my passion. And I was listening to all of your your interviews. And it was so inspirational. So I am super grateful that you put out all that hard work. I know it's a lot. So I'm curious for you. I know your journey started off with you working a full-time nine-to-five job and you discovered side hustles. How did you discover side hustles and what was your first side hustle? My first uh, official side hustle was a comparison shopping site for footwear. It would uh, pull in the catalogs from uh, Zappos and Amazon eventually and uh, a bunch of these other online footwear retailers and it would collect a sales commission on any orders that were made through the site it, um, I mean, that was the vehicle that let me quit my job. It was three years of nights and weekends kind of toiling away to make this um, into a viable thing. And by the time I finally got up the nerve to quit, I don't know that it had fully replaced my day job salary, but I am confident that I had a track record uh, of revenue where it was at least covering the, you know, my share of the expenses. And so that was when I felt comfortable to say, hey, if I had an extra 40, 50 hours a week to dedicate to this, I'm really confident I can get to that current day job salary level and beyond. How did you even know that was an option for a business? It came through an internship and in college. So I went to school at the University of Washington and had this, uh, my my roommate pointed out uh, this ad in the student newspaper, like looking for a marketing intern, you should go apply. Like, all right, I'll go check this out. And it was for a company in Seattle that actually started as a brick and mortar shoe store. And they had the wild and crazy idea, like in the early days of the internet to, well, what happens if we throw some of our inventory up online? And by the time I came on board, of course, the online portion of their business had grown tremendously faster than 
the little old brick and mortar shop that they had. And so they put me in charge of uh, pay-per-click advertising and their affiliate program and a little bit of SEO. It was my first exposure to any of that. And so after the internship ended, I was like, well, maybe I could turn around and be an affiliate of theirs and a handful of these other companies. And so that was kind of the the early days. And footwear is an interesting one because I, I don't particularly care about shoes. I'm not a sneakerhead. It just <laughs> happened to be the product that I had a little bit of exposure to. And for a physical product at that time, anyways, it still had relatively high commissions. Like in the digital product world, you'll see commissions 30, 40, 50%. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the for shoes, it was like 10, 15, tw- as high as 20, which was like, that's a decent chunk of change to play with if you're selling a $100 pair of shoes. So it uh, was a product that I had a little bit of background in and uh, there was a little bit of commission to play with versus, and, and over the years that kind of got squeezed and now Amazon is like 4% across the board and yeah. stuff. So a, a little bit harder to play in that space. Wait, are you still running that business? No, I shut it down in 2014 as it was kind of getting squeezed from both sides. Like the commissions were uh, getting lower and lower. And on top of that, the cost of driving traffic relied really heavily on uh, Google AdWords. So the cost mm-hmm. of traffic was increasing. Um, combination of factors, more and more searches were starting on uh, Amazon and not Google. And on top of that, Google had kind of shifted for product-specific searches to uh, an image ad um, an image ad format, which affiliates were not eligible for. So it was kind of a, um, a text link player in an image ad world. And, um, by that time, thankfully the side hustle nation stuff had at least had a little bit of legs. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to focus on this, uh, full time now. That's so cool. I love that. I, th- I think it's always so interesting where side hustles will lead. I'm a big believer that it's not always about the money when it comes to side hustles. It's about the skills that you can learn. What is your take on side hustles? How do you view them? Well, obviously, I am super excited about this lower risk brand of entrepreneurship. It was a pathway to you know, financial freedom, like being able to be my own boss for the last um, almost 12 years. Um, so it's fantastic. And I think it's a more realistic entrepreneurial narrative than what, I, what at least what I was hearing, you know, at the time that I started the site. Now it's become a, a little bit more of a, of a buzzword. But the narrative that I was hearing was like, you're going to have to raise venture capital, you're going to have to quit your job. An entrepreneur is somebody who uh, jumps off the cliff and figures out how to build their parachute on the way down. Like, that sounds incredibly stressful for me. <laughs> I was like, no, there's a different way you know, I, I can't be the only one who's who's done this. And so through the podcast, trying to find other kind of been there, done that uh, success stories, you know, you start small, bootstrap and uh, and grow from there. Do you find that to be the norm today? It's becoming much, much more mainstream. And you've probably seen some of the latest uh, data that says like half of the population has some sort of side hustle or extra income stream. And we could debate whether that's a good thing because certain a certain percentage of those are doing it out of necessity and not out of uh, desire to be an entrepreneur. They're kind of forced into it. But on the positive side, there are more opportunity uh, to make extra money than ever before. And so there's a little bit of a proactive uh, push to not just like a reaction to economic conditions. So it's exciting stuff. I think it's super cool too. I'm all about it. I'm curious for your background, where'd you grow up and how was money talked about when you were a kid? 
Uh, grew up outside of uh, Seattle, Washington. Money was a—I uh, don't know if it was talked about. There was um, an understanding in our house that uh, money was not an infinite resource. And looking back now, I don't know if this is my parents just being empty nesters and finally like loosening up a little bit, or it's like, were they always better off than they let on? Or was it <laughs> that frugal mentality that led to them now being uh, being pretty well off? So there were, you know, there, maybe that's a hint. I don't know. It was, I mean, we were expected to have jobs. We were taught at a very early age uh, to save money. And I remember this is like in the late 80s, you know, you'd go in and interest rates were like, five percent or something so you would like have an actual physical bank book and they would print out the interest that you earn on your savings account and i remember that being like so cool so rewarding i was like this is like you know passive income for a six-year-old like i'm you know emptying out my coin jar and going <laughs> to deposit into the bank or getting birthday money and going to deposit in the bank and watching the little interest uh column tick up so that was really cool and then the other thing that mom and dad did uh early on which i thought well, actually, a couple of things, if you have time. Uh, one was uh, investing. And so they encouraged uh, like stock market investing uh, early on. And so like maybe 1998, 1999 timeframe, dad is like setting me up with this uh, mutual fund and there's like a tech, a tech mutual fund. And so like it doubles in this NASDAQ boom. And I'm like, investing is fantastic. This is this is the greatest thing ever. And then, of course, the next year it gets cut in half, uh, you know, during the boom or during the bust. And like, all right, maybe this investing thing uh, isn't so awesome anymore. But that was a, a really important kind of like early exposure to the ups and downs uh, of the market. And they also encouraged at a very early age to uh, have a credit card, but understand like treat it like a debit card. Like this is, you can't spend money you don't have. Every credit card I've ever had has been 0% interest because it's always been paid off every month. And that was a habit that was instilled uh, from a very early age. Like, hey, we, we trust you. You need to be responsible. You need to build credit. But um, don't get yourself into trouble here. Smart parents, man. I think that's so, so good. And I'm sure you're passing that on to your little ones too. So you've been talking to Literally at this stage, hundreds of people. I think you started your podcast in what, 2013? Yes. Okay. So 2013, you've talked to a ton of different people that are making money moves and side hustling and just doing things for fun, for money to pay off debt, whatever their their personal drive is. I'm curious for you today, do you consider yourself more of a practitioner that's actually like testing all these side hustles or more of a, a curator? That was the idea early on with the site. Like, okay, I'm going to be the... Uh, experimenter the guinea pig for all this stuff and and in a lot of ways because the shoe business was kind of on the decline some of that was out of necessity like okay i've got to figure out some ways to to stay self-employed and so in those first few years there are a lot of uh you know my own experiments in freelancing and selling on fiverr and you know doing uh books on amazon um even uh, some e-commerce experiments like with amazon fba um and all that stuff is kind of you know, that was the initial idea for the site. It's like, okay, I'll be the guinea pig. I'll report back what works, what doesn't, which opportunities are are legit. That has definitely shifted as the podcast has grown, as the blog has grown um, to being more of a journalist role, more of a uh, curator role, like you said, where it's like, okay, I can source uh, other people who have done it. Um, and that's turned out to be a better use of my time than, you know, going out and uh, testing every single one uh, for myself. 
which and that's a, <laughs> I had no idea how deep the waters uh, went on on the side hustle universe at that time too. No kidding, right? I know. I like it's one of my favorite conversations that I've ever had, and I know you've spoke with him before too. Is flea market flipper? Yes. Oh my god! Right, like the most amazing story of just how you can sell pretty much anything a prosthetic leg when i heard that i was like what <laughs> they're they're one of your best uh follows um on instagram if you're not following flea market flipper um just because it's like here, here's some trash we picked up on the side of the road and sure <laughs> enough two weeks later they're like hey remember that thing we picked up on the side of the road we just sold it for four hundred dollars and you're like oh and they're like why do people throw money away and it's just you know they have they've got an eye for what is valuable um you know, armed with different apps and stuff, and they've got relationships in their local community. And it's, it's super inspiring what they're doing and what they're turning around and teaching other people to do. Because so now too. I see them uh, sharing stories from inside their community. Oh, so-and-so just uh, joined our training last week, or they joined our free challenge last week, and they already made a thousand bucks. Trash into treasure. It's, it's, it's so awesome. good. It is so good. I actually joined their course as well because I was kind of curious about the shipping piece. Like, how do you ship these big pieces of yeah. equipment? Um, not as difficult as you would think, but you'll have to join the course if you want to hear how. It's really interesting. <laughs> um, very, very cool stuff. So in your opinion, we all have a I think I think we have a deep desire to just try things and to make a little extra money. We hear those stories. And we're like, oh, I can do that, too. But yet sometimes we don't take it further than that. Why do you think more people don't side hustle? Well, I don't know. That's a good question. It's, you know, maybe not knowing what opportunities are out there. I mean, that's still a big, big pain point for a, a, a segment of my audience. It's like, I'm still looking for the right side hustle idea. Um, and I want to be like, hey, there's 300 episodes, like go pick something. Um, because the truth is, it doesn't really matter what you start. Like, it's just that act of starting. And then the, you know, that builds the positive momentum and you figure out, okay, I like that. I didn't like that. It's on to the next thing. You know, choosing what's next doesn't mean choosing what's forever. And we, we just talked about, I started out selling shoes on the internet, like, and I naively thought, hey, this could be my thing. I could do this forever. Um, but it led to everything that came after. And even before that, I started painting houses in college. And it was like, that was you know, my entrepreneurial gateway drug in a lot of ways. And it's just, it has led to everything that's come since. That's so great. Were you doing this like on your own or through a company? Through a company. It was college works painting. Um, oh, they're everywhere. <laughs> which was like, yeah, we're, we're going to assign you a uh, territory, <laughs> assign you a zip code. We're going to arm you with uh, how to estimate a job, how to hire people, how to... Um, uh, a little, very, very little on how to actually paint. They're like, it's not rocket science. You'll figure it out. <laughs> um, and it was kind of off to the races. It was an incredible entrepreneurial experience for somebody at 19, 20 years old to have that kind of responsibility. Um, and that's that's what attracted me to the gig. And I remember being super nervous about it. And like, is this a pyramid scheme? Like, what if this sucks? And my wife, uh, Bryn, who's my girlfriend at the time, was like, it's three months of your life. If it sucks, it sucks. Like, you know, you know, that was her mentality early on. Like choosing what's next doesn't mean choosing what's forever. Give it a shot. What's the worst thing that happens? She's a smart lady. I think that's good advice for everybody too. The other reason that I think potentially adding to that where people may not consider side hustling is, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've talked with a lot of people that I think it's maybe a mindset issue, but they think their time is so dang valuable. 
Like my, my time is so valuable. I'm not going to do Uber Eats or I'm not going to do Lyft or I'm not going to do any of like the shared economy stuff because my time's so valuable. And I'm like, homie, you're sitting there watching Netflix every weekend. Like, is your time really that valuable? <laughs> like, it's so interesting. But that's maybe another reason why I think people don't side hustle as much. Yeah, well, you got to want it. And it's the same thing as if you're trying to lose 20 pounds or trying to make an extra thousand bucks. It's like if it is not meaningful to you, then you're not going to take action on it. And I think that's, uh, you know, I always give the example of like six pack abs. It's like in January, it's really easy to say, yeah, I want to have a six pack. But would my life be significantly better if I did? Like, I, you know, it's never been a strong enough driver to actually sit down and say like, oh, that means you have to have like 9% body fat. Like that's not super easy to achieve. And I'm like a pretty thin guy anyway. So it's just a weird, like you got to really want it and have a driving, you know, motivational factor behind it. I totally, totally agree with you too. I think that's a really good point is you do have to want it for sure. So let's say we're talking to somebody that does want it. If somebody's listening to this podcast episode, they're probably interested in side hustling and making some extra cash. You've interviewed so many people where is a good place to start? So if somebody does want to make $1,000, what are some side hustles that you have found that might be a good fit? Yes. So super cool to start with that goal in mind of the the $1,000 uh, milestone because that makes it tangible. And actually, a similar story to the flea market flipper that comes to mind was uh, Ryan Finley runs a site called Recraigslist, which I haven't been on recently, so I don't know if he's still blogging over there. Um, but when we spoke in 2014 was making his entire living just buying and selling stuff on Craigslist. Buy low, sell high, like an age old business model, same as flea market flipper. And when he was starting out, he was like, how can I find $50 worth of profit a day? Like that was the tangible goal that I said, like, I'm pretty confident I can make this happen. And they ended up specializing in like washers and dryers. I was like, could you imagine like a bulkier thing uh, to try and move around? And he's got like a dozen of these hanging out in the garage. But that was where he found his $50 profit a day and then, you know, scaled it on up to be able to support his family of five. Um, One way to kind of think about this, maybe um, in the initial stages is to think of like the broad business models that are out there. And so I would consider just about every business in the world is going to fall under one of these three categories. Those are product-based businesses like the flea market flipper, like selling on eBay, selling on Amazon, um, even some of the unique uh, like print-on-demand uh, stuff that's come into play, like oh, I'm going to design t-shirts and have somebody else print and fulfill that stuff. Um, so product-based, product-based businesses. Uh, the second category would be service-based businesses. Love service-based businesses for people starting out because no barrier to entry. Like I don't need to create a product. I don't need to buy any inventory. I don't need to build an audience. Like I just need a customer and I'm off to the races, right? For me, it was painting houses. I've done freelance book editing. I've done like recruiting services, um, lawn mowing, babysitting, all sorts. Like I talked to a woman the other day who's uh, had a pet waste removal business. Like I'll come to your yard once a week. I'll pick up the dog poop. You'll just pay me on, um, she had it set up through Square, like auto billing. Awesome. Awesome service business. Um, and the final business is kind of in uh, the place that we're both playing now, and that's kind of the audience-based business. You know, I'm going to create content online, blog, podcast, YouTube, Instagram, um, TikTok, <laughs> whatever it is. I'm going to build an audience, and then I'm going to figure out how to monetize that audience later. Uh, advertising is 
you know, the obvious method, um, Google and Facebook, you could consider audience businesses. Um, you're going to sell ads against this audience, affiliate traffic um, in the blog uh, and uh, uh, and YouTube space is really big there. Or and you have the flexibility here is like once you have the audience, you have the flexibility to say like, what services do they need? Could I provide a service to them? Could I sell them uh, a product? So those are kind of the big three business model frameworks that just about every business is is going to fall under. And which one you choose kind of depends on where you're at and your time horizons and everything, because the audience business is going to take longer to build up than sticking your flag in the sand and saying, okay, I'm going to go pick up dog poop or I'm going to go mow lawns. I love the idea of like, trying to figure out which business model is interesting to you, because I think that kind of ties into your personality type and how much time do you have, like you mentioned. So for you, you chose to go now the audience route. Why did you choose to go that over like a service-based business? And I've, I've definitely done my share of service-based businesses, but the audience-based business is the, probably the biggest upside potential. And there are people sitting at the top of, you know, Fortune 100 service companies that would probably beg to differ. But for me, it's more time leveraged, right? It's like this speculative upfront investment. Like, hey, I'm going to make a, I'm going to make podcasts for a year and see if anybody tunes in, and you see just enough traction to uh, to try and keep going. Um, that's always been appealing to me. And there's this Warren Buffett quote that says something along the lines of, "If you don't figure out." how to make passive income. If you don't figure out a way to make money in your sleep, you're going to work until you die. And so it's been carving out, even if it's just an hour a week, carving out a little bit of time for these proactive, speculative, maybe you're never going to see any type of return, passive income projects to build up that, you know, everybody starts out trading time for money. Like yep. there's no shame in that. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, and so that's kind of like imagine a pie chart and it's like, okay, maybe you start to invest a little bit and you earn a little bit of interest and dividend income and you're like, hey, there's a sliver of not time for money uh, income on my pie chart. And what I'm suggesting is if you can allocate a little bit of your time and resources to growing that time leveraged piece, that passive income piece, the better off you're going to be. Um, otherwise, like Warren says, you're going to work until you die. My favorite example of this is a guy, Matt Boknock, who uh, is in Chicago. He runs a site called Chicagoland Motorcycle Repair and HowToMotorcycleRepair.com. He started out, his side hustle was turning wrenches in the garage. Like, hey, I will repair your bike. Bring it over here. Add on Craigslist. Total straight hours for dollars work. His stroke of genius was early on setting up a little camera and filming himself doing the repairs. Oh, all so of a sudden, smart. all of a sudden, now he's got content for YouTube. He's got tens of thousands of subscribers over there now. He's making ad money from YouTube. He's um, selling full engine rebuild videos on. Uh, hey, if you have this bike yourself, you don't live in Chicago. Hey, I'll you know watch me rebuild this. You can follow along step by step. And over the last three four years. He's gone from straight trading time for money to now just like not doing that part of the business at all. Like everything is time leveraged through his YouTube channel. He's developed relationships with brands for uh, sponsored content, for, um, you know, just kind of this freelance work. Like, hey, we're, we're a big insurance company. We want to pay you to make some videos for our motorcycle customers. And it's just like it never it never would have happened had he not allocated just a little bit of extra time to you know this this speculative side uh, of things so how long that's did kind it of take him nick 
When we first recorded, probably early 2016, he was about 50-50 um, in terms of uh, the revenue that came from doing the repair work and the you know online video sales. And then when we recorded again just last fall, he was up to like 99% um, you know, passive or time leveraged stuff. Um, so it was definitely a work in process, but the pie was also four or five times bigger too. So like during that time, he's like, oh, you know, and instead of a thousand bucks a month, now it's like $5,000 a month. I think that's so cool. That's super inspirational too. I think that's the interesting thing about listening to your podcast is you see so many different ways of making money. You see Rosemarie, who was doing Pinterest managing. Like you see all of these different areas of like, oh my God, I could do that. Or I had to, didn't even think that was a skill for me. So let's talk right. a little bit about the service business. <clears throat> if somebody's in that area and they think they maybe want to trade, guess their time for money, but they think they can scale up like coaching or some type of service. How do you even know what service you should be offering? Any suggestions there? Sure. So obviously, uh, kind of take inventory of your own skills first. Like, what do you know how to do? What do people ask you for help with? Where are you? Where do you have some perceived expertise? Um, and in my case, like people came to me like for book editing help, for virtual assistant recruiting help. And so it was like, hmm. all right, I'll I'll give that a shot. You know, I've never never gotten paid to do that before, but sure, let's let's try it out. Um, what's the other question? Is maybe like what comes easier to you than other people or like what comes easier to you that other people find difficult mm -hmm. you gave the pinterest example like maybe that's another good illustration is like you know hitching your cart to a rising tide of interest in a particular uh platform like we've seen people like i'm a i'm a dedicated pinterest manager like this is a time-consuming platform i know the ins and outs i'm going to stay up to, up to date on it you don't have to worry about it 400 bucks a month I can take on 10 clients, right? And it's like all of a sudden, like now I don't need a day job anymore. I do this and software helps me out. Um, and I could hire a junior member of my team to manage some of these accounts. And there's lots of stuff you can do there. Um, podcast editing, we've seen people build pretty serious businesses around the rising tide of uh, people jumping into the podcast space. I mean, I've seen... Uh, virtual assistant or kind of like remote agents, agency businesses pop up around uh, video editing and copywriting. Hey, you need content for your blog? Like, we'll do this for you. Um, lots of different stuff that you can do. And that's kind of like in the online world. Um, we, we talked about, I mean, you could do uh, house cleaning. One of my favorite examples is uh, Chris Schwab from ThinkMades. And in his case, it wasn't this inventory of skills where it's like, I really love scrubbing toilets. It was like, <laughs> no, wait a minute none of the people on Yelp for cleaning companies are complaining about the cleaning. They're complaining that I can't get a hold of anybody. I didn't know uh, it took three weeks to get a quote. I didn't know when they were coming out. He's like, I can do that. I can just hire people to do the actual cleaning. And so incredible story of like just kind of playing matchmaker. And so you don't have to fall down the, the road of like, well, I don't have any skills. It's like, well, there are still options for you, even if you don't have any skills. I love that example too. I think that's such a good one. So when he launched that business, he is not the one scrubbing the toilets, doing the deep cleaning in the houses. He's hiring somebody to do that. How did he get it? So it's like people actually know about the business. So at that time, he was using a platform called Thumbtack to uh, generate leads. So people would come on Thumbtack, look for a cleaning bid, and he would just uh, jump on there 
all hours of the day because he was actually still a student <laughs> in college oh, wow. when he started this. And so he's like, you know, messaging people and then like, oh, I got to I got to nibble, you know, now I got to go find a cleaning crew to go out there and do that. And I was like, you know, were you nervous? Did you go to the house yourself? And he's like, I wanted to, but I resisted the urge to do it. Like I knew, I knew from the very beginning it needed to be hands off. I was like, man, I admire that because as from someone who did way too much house painting themselves for somebody <laughs> who was supposed to be the manager, it was like, it was really hard to kind of let go. So I admire him for that. I love that. I think that's so cool. The other piece I really want to illustrate is you you touched on the rising tide stuff. And I think this is so freaking critical for people listening in. There's a gal that I've been following for quite some time who started off trying to teach people about Instagram. Just, you know, here's how you can do Instagram stories. Here's how you can boost your profile. And it was so competitive at that time that it was kind of just noise. And now she specializes in LinkedIn. And helping people with their LinkedIn. And how do you get more sales and leads from that platform? And that will change eventually too. But you mentioned TikTok. So it's like, what if somebody <laughs> were to learn everything they can about that platform and start becoming a coach or courses or whatever the heck it might be, which kind of leads us into the product business. But you could even consult people on that. I think that is so smart to look at the rising tide stuff too. Yeah. And you can look at Google Trends for this kind of stuff. You can talk to uh, teenagers. You can just look at kind of <laughs> for real. Um, data on what is is going on in the world. Mm-hmm. I, I spoke with um, Nick Huber the other day. He runs uh, The Sweaty Startup. He hosts The, the Sweaty Startup, which I just love. My, my new favorite uh, podcast name. And he's, an, he's a huge advocate for these kind of like local blue collar service based types uh, of businesses. And he's like, this isn't necessarily about uh, conquesting market share from another company. It's about just this pie continues to grow. He's like 20 years ago, only uh, one person in 20 um, outsourced their uh, lawn mowing. But Whoa. now it's like 40% of people outsource their uh, their lawn care. And he's like, in a couple of years, it's probably going to be 50%. So it's like, you're not necessarily like racing to the bottom on price or trying to steal market share from another business. It's like, no, there's like legitimately more people using this service today than there were yesterday. So you could be, go be that person. And the, uh, you know, pet waste removal woman said the same thing. It's like, she wasn't stealing business from somebody else. She was stealing business from the husband or the kid whose chore it was. (laughs) The kids are like, dang it, get out of here. (laughs) No, I'm sure kids probably don't mind. She That's, told one story of the kid actually spending his allowance on her service so he didn't have to do it himself. <laughs> That's like an episode of I think it was Modern Family or I can't it was one of those shows where the kid was outsourcing because they were like, OK, we're going to teach you responsibility <laughs> and we're going to have you do all of the the dog poop picking up that's your job it will pay you like 10 bucks or something per week and then she found it somebody that's like oh yeah i'll do it for three dollars she's like great sitting back <laughs> sipping her kool-aid you know i was like this is the best it's like it's like the tom sawyer skill like motivating other people to to do it for you <laughs> delegation is a true skill it really is i think it's impressive um talk to me a little bit about the product business that one seems very straightforward but i think that's the one that has a lot of difficulty in execution. So can you talk about like, what does that look like? And what are some examples you've seen? Sure. So lots of um, nuance underneath the product business umbrella. Probably the fastest, easiest way to get started is to go the eBay route. What's in your attic? What's in your closet? What's in your garage? What is sitting around collecting dust? Like, can you 
turn that into cash, turn that clutter into cash. And that's kind of how the flea market flippers, uh, Robin, Melissa would have most people get started as well. The problem with that is you eventually run out of inventory and you got to go sourcing for them. It's local flea markets, it's Craigslist, it's offer up, it's, um, you know, whatever else is, happens to be, uh, local. Um, it's, uh, we, we met a woman who was doing like thrift store flipping and she was in there often enough where she kind of knew what items were new, what, you know, vintage trendy stuff was selling. And so she had this whole uh, system for that. Like I did this myself in the uh, Amazon FBA world a few years ago where I like, cause I met people who were like making serious money, like just buying low, selling high from like Walmart, Home Depot, Babies R Us before. And this is like right around when my first son was born. So I was like, oh, is that Babies R Us anyways? I was like, well, let me swing (laughs) by the clearance aisle. And, you know, you scan it with the little Amazon seller app and you're like, sure enough, there is some margin in there. And I didn't, like, I honestly didn't believe it because I was like, in the, in the big data era that we live in, like, how have, how has Walmart not figured this out? How have they not, like, understood that, you know, just by changing the distribution channel, like it was, it was weird. So I had to do it to prove it to myself. Um, it's become a little bit more challenging with more and more categories, you know, requiring special permission and stuff to sell into, but absolutely can still get started. Um, you know, with, with that buy low, sell high, like physical product type of business. Um, one of the more interesting ones recently is like the world of drop shipping, uh, print on demand. Um, so I've been playing around with Printful, which is a I guess you'd consider it a dropship supplier, but Printful will integrate with your own Shopify store. It'll integrate with your Etsy shop. So it's like if you have kind of an eye for design and coming up with clever slogans to throw on T-shirts, mugs, hats, whatever, like you don't have to hold any inventory anymore. It's just a completely cool, like game changing technology where you can tap into the marketplace of buyers that's already on Etsy, that's already on Amazon. So that's kind of the... uh, you call it a hybrid uh, model of uh, of physical products where it's like, yeah, there is a physical product, but you never had to touch it. That's such a beautiful model too, because then you don't have the garage full of crap that you can't sell. <sighs> yes. If if nobody wants it, all it cost me was, you know, five minutes of design and upload time. Yeah. So true story. I tried to drop shipping to, in all honesty, not that well. I didn't really put that much time into it, but I was doing a business that I called the happy pineapple. <laughs> okay. And all I did was sell pineapple stuff. And so it was like pineapple earrings and I would, you know, find inventory from AliExpress and then create like a Shopify store, hook up Oberlo, however you say that. Um, So it's like an inventory tracker. And I mean, there's so many ways that you can do this stuff. And I loved your idea of just going to like Babies RS because you were there all the time and doing that. So can we dig into that business model a little bit more of like how how would somebody actually execute that specific type of model? Sure. So the easiest way to get started, you need a couple things. You need a uh, Amazon seller account, which you should be able to get a free personal seller account. If not, it's going to cost you forty bucks to to do this trial because um, it's forty dollars a month for a professional level seller account. You need to download the Amazon seller app, which is your magical barcode scanning thing that tells you uh, what this item is selling for on Amazon and what's your likely take after all uh, the fees. And so. What you'll need to do is just like make it a point while you're out running your regular errands to stop by the clearance section and scan some items. And you're going to find that most of the stuff is cheaper on Amazon. It's it's a little bit of a needle in the haystack search. 
And as time became more uh, precious with a young kid running around, like that's what kind of why like I stopped doing it. Like my yeah. my <laughs> it's frustrating to go through the store, spend 45 minutes and then walk out empty handed. But as you become a little bit better at it, you learn what sells, what sections to look for. You know, you can spot new inventory or stuff that's been marked down like a one of my mastermind members would do this on his way home. He's like, I worked downtown. I walked past Target every day on my way home. I, you know, had this route mapped out through the store. I knew instantly what items to buy. Once it hit 70% off, I would buy it. And he actually used the cash flow from that to fund his audience-based business. Like that's what he was oh, really cool. passionate about, interested in. And he used it kind of to like bankroll it as the silent partner. It's like, I needed a little extra cash flow and I felt better about investing in hosting and graphic design and podcast editing and all this stuff uh, if it wasn't pulling from my day job salary. So that was an interesting way to do it. Um, the Perhaps the next level that a lot of people take this to is the like private label model, like the importing model where it's like, okay, instead of scouring the the shelves of Walmart and Home Depot, it's um, it's maybe less time consuming, but way more speculative and, and risky up front. So when I started out, I was like a couple hundred bucks, like that's going to be my, my play money for inventory. And if it sells fantastic, like hopefully I'll, I'll at least break even on it. Um, but worst case, I'm out 200 bucks in the private label model. You're trying to find uh, a product that is selling well on Amazon, but maybe has less than positive reviews. Like the sales volume is the key. Like you want something where there's already proven demand. How can you improve upon this product and make it unique, make it better, uh, make it your own, right? And then trying to find uh, a manufacturer, usually in China through Alibaba.com, uh, who can make it for you. And you're ordering samples and you're importing all this stuff. Um, it could be several thousand dollars. And so that's why you want to be reasonably confident there's demand for this. And it is a physical product. So it's like most cases you can at least sell it to break even, but a much more capital intensive business. Okay, the crazy thing. Sec. How do you know if they're, if it's actually selling, like you said, if it's got good sales volume, how do you even know if that's moving? So inside each category on Amazon, there's a sales rank. Um, so like, in um, you know, home and garden or something, home and kitchen, right? The the top selling item in home and kitchen will have a sales rank of one. And then there are these different tools. Like if you hit junglescout.com slash estimator, I think, um, it'll tell you approximately how many uh, of those units for a given sales rank that uh, that item is selling. And so you can kind of do some math and say like, oh, crap, if they're selling uh, 200 of these a day, and I estimate their margins to be uh, about here based on what I can get something similar manufactured for in China. It's like, okay, they're making about this much per day. And then it's this whole, it's this whole thing, but a very cash intensive business. And most people that I talk to who are successful with it, don't take any money off the table. Like they plow everything back into more inventory, more products, like at least for the first 12 months, just cause you're like, you kind of get hooked on it. Um, but if you find a product that hits, it can escalate super quickly. Like I was at a, a side hustle nation meetup and some friends of mine showed up and uh, they were like, uh, yeah, I think we're going to do this uh, Amazon thing. We got our first order. You know, they show me the app like, hey, we got a, a little bit of sales volume coming in. I swear it was like two months later. They sent me a picture of the husband and their son like riding a forklift in their new warehouse. What? And I was like. Well, that escalated quickly. It was Holy just nuts. crap. 
Um, so it's just that's the kind of thing where you can tap into these pre-existing marketplaces. Like if you find something that hits, it's um, it's really fast. The Amazon scares me though. Like it's does me too. You know, you know they're mining your data. You know, like you know, there's always this threat in the back of your head of well, the Amazon Basics version of whatever you're selling is coming out two months down the line. Everybody else is looking at the same exact Jungle Scout data, trying to make their own tweaks and improvements upon your product. And it's like, from a consumer standpoint, that's how the internet gets better. From an e-commerce seller standpoint, that's you know potentially thousands and thousands of dollars in inventory risk uh, that uh, that you don't have as much control over as you'd like. Yeah, I think it, it you would almost have to view it as you're doing this to maybe make a quick buck in the short run, but in the long run, you're trying to do that audience building where it's like you're building up a brand and then maybe that's how you would scale it up. Is that kind of what you're seeing? That's what everybody wants is like to get <laughs> off of the Amazon teat. Right? Sure. It's like, how can I build my own uh, e-commerce platform? But it's hard to do because, I mean, as a customer, like I am used to Amazon. They've got all my information stored. I could do one click ordering. It's, it, it can be difficult to get off of that. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Okay. Let's say hypothetically, I'm going to put you on the spot for this. If somebody comes to you and they say, Nick, I'm struggling financially. I've got this bill that's coming up. I got to bring in 500 bucks this week. I have to, or they're going to foreclose on my house. I don't know. I mean, we're, we're being dramatic here, but it could be something like that. What do you suggest to them? What What's something that they could do to bring in like 500 bucks this week? Sure. For super short-term stuff, it's either going to be selling inventory that you already have, uh, you know, sitting around collecting dust or providing some type of service. Um, and you might be surprised at what you could go out and sell. I mean, we gave the example of people selling Pinterest management services for 400 bucks a month. Like it may not take as many clients as you think. I and mean, we're kind of thinking like, oh, I could go, like you mentioned, Uber Eats. It's like, well, your earning potential is probably capped there. You know, maybe 15, maybe 20 bucks an hour. Um, and so that, I mean, that can absolutely get you out of your problem. Although by the time you get approved and set up, like, you know, you're probably not going to get <laughs> there, there in a week. Um, but yeah, selling selling some inventory you already have or going out and finding a customer with a problem you can solve. Maybe that's cutting the grass. Maybe that's pressure washing their driveway. Maybe that's, um, you know, doing the, although 500 bucks worth of dog poop would, would take lots and lots of customers. But you, you kind of have to get your creative gears turning. And the the constraint breeds creativity because, you know, I ask people like, what, what, what would you want to do for a side hustle? And then you rephrase the question like, okay, gun to your head. You need 500 bucks by the end of the week. All of a sudden people are like coming up with ideas out of left field. So it's that, that constraint breeds uh, some creativity. But again, you really got to, you got to want it. You figure out a way to, to make it happen. I think it, it makes perfect sense in my head too. And I, I love the idea of the constraint being an advantage instead of a negativity. I think sometimes too many choices gives us a lot of problems where we have that decision fatigue and we can't really make a decision and it's it's tough so more decisions isn't always a good thing i want to yeah. hear about your editing experience when you were doing that as a side hustle how did you walk us through that process i presume you were a good editor and that's how you got started but how did you get known for that 
Yeah, I was like in in a rare leap of confidence. I was like, yeah, I was a decent uh, English student in school. I've written a handful of books myself. And on top of that, I kind of like to read nonfiction and business books. So that's kind of where I uh, niched down and said, I will, I'll edit your your nonfiction and specifically business books kind of in my uh, in my wheelhouse. I actually got my first clients on Fiverr. I said, I'll oh, proofread really? your nonfiction book for five bucks for 500 words. And then slowly kind of crept up the, the rates as the portfolio started to grow, like had some positive reviews on that gig. Um, I partnered with uh, someone who teaches a self-publishing course. So I was like, hey, you probably have a uh, Rolodex of service providers that you recommend. What's the process to becoming like a preferred vendor of yours? And so uh, through that course, was able to get some other clients. And then just through some, you know, online author communities kind of built up a reputation for um, being able to provide editing services. So it was it was a fun little side hustle. I read some really interesting work and some not so interesting work, but it was it was a cool, <laughs> rewarding experience. I think it was so smart because you're working your network on that too. And that was just leveraging your existing resources. I think that was super clever. I could literally talk about this stuff all day. I just think it's so interesting to hear how people make money. And I know that's what you do at the Side Hustle Show podcast and on Side Hustle Nation. You've got a killer list of side hustle ideas at sidehustlenation.com slash ideas. Can you talk a little bit about that resource? This was one of the first blog posts that I ever wrote, and it's grown uh, over time. Like I republish it every, you know, six months or something with with new ideas and new updates. Um, but it's just a big list of ideas, like for people getting started. SideHustleNation.com/ideas. Um, my hope is by the time you scroll down to the bottom of that list, there's like 117 or something on this list now. Uh, my hope is you have like 10 tabs open, right? Because that's the feedback that I get from people who who land on the site. That's what I that's what I want. I want you to spider deep into all these different things, explore which ones sound most doable, most appealing to you, and then more importantly, go take action on it. Because it's like it's one thing to sit on the sidelines, listen to this stuff, read this stuff, but it's another one to to take action on it. Because then, like we talked about, like that momentum uh, starts to work in your favor, and you never know what comes next. And as you said, none of these are permanent things. It's just trial and error. See if it resonates with you. And if it doesn't, cool. Quit it. Move on. Absolutely. You have time for one more. There's one more story, yes. which I just find fascinating. And this is in under the product um, business category is selling digital products. So you could have, you know, ebooks, courses, software, one of the more impressive course sales businesses to, to sell a digital product. Typically you need an audience. The workaround in this guy's case, he was teaching a course on uh, how to start a microgreens farming business. So what? whatever you are an expert in, somebody else wants to learn that thing. I was like, I never heard of this. He had, you know, grown these microgreens in his garage or something here in his bedroom. And he's like, oh, he's super passionate about it. Like, oh, they're super uh, nutrient dense. And, you know, they grow in seven days. It's a fantastic little business. You know, you can grow them in little trays. You don't need outdoor space. Um, and he was making like a thousand bucks a month selling these at the farmer's market and to local restaurants. It's like, okay, cool. But the real stroke of genius, again, was like teaching other people how to do the same thing. And but didn't have a blog, didn't have, you know, this audience uh, of his own, didn't have an email list to sell to. So he started on YouTube, kind of like 
15 minute video, 10 minute video on like, here's my growing process, right? And it just, you know, it's an okay produced video. It's like, you know, showing him in the garage and like, you know, working and putting the seeds in and then time lapses, you know, seven days later and like, hey, look, you know, we got this whole thing. That video leads to landing page on his website. It's like, hey, if you want my free microgreens starter guide thing, you know, opt in here. That funnels into, you know, an email sequence that promotes his paid course, $500 course on how to start your own microgreens farming business. When we spoke, he was doing like 40, 50 grand in sales a month on the course side of the business, driving just traffic from YouTube. People were typing in how to start a microgreens business into YouTube. And his video was one of the ones that showed up. It added a ton of value. And just like enough people were kind of going through his funnel. And so I was like, really gets your gears turning on like, what could you teach? What is the traffic generator you could have at the top of your funnel? I love an evergreen traffic funnel like YouTube, especially for a video product, because it's like you're already kind of showing your personality. You're, you know, showing somebody, giving them like a micro uh, webinar type of format where it's like, here's here's how it works. You can do like, look, I could do this. You can do this. And it worked exceptionally well. And it's a hot audience too. Like it's a warm lead. They are searching for that specific piece of content. And if you're the one that solves that problem, they're going to think of you and want to go in a little bit deeper. I think that's super cool. There's a guy, I'm dying to figure out what his business model is more so, but recently I got into collecting rocks. This sounds super nerdy. It's okay. <laughs> Every, everybody that listens to this show it's knows the money that. nerds. I know it's Rock really, nerds. I feel like such a weirdo. Um, but I started going to vacations and I would collect little rocks when I was on the beach that just looked kind of pretty. I'm like, oh, that'd be fun. I'd like to turn that into jewelry at some point. And so now I'm going down this entire niche of rock tumbling and jewelry making. And they're, even in that little area, there's so much money to be made there, too. I've been watching a guy that goes around and takes you on his journey going into these, like, backcountry mines, which probably don't do that. But it's really <laughs> interesting. And then he brings all his stuff home and shows you the time lapse of how do you tumble rocks and how do you turn this into jewelry. And I'm not joking. I'm, like, entranced by this. I think it's the coolest thing. Yeah, there's a million different niches to go down. And I think that's just one thing that's so exciting. You know, whatever you're interested in, interested in, or just want to learn more about, you can approach it from the standpoint, kind of like I did with Side Hustle Nation. Like I'm not pretending to be the world's foremost entrepreneurial teacher or educator here, but I'm somebody who's just curious along this journey. Like how do these people build these operations and uh, have learned a ton along the way? I think you've done such an amazing job just showing people what's possible. So I admire your work for that reason, especially. I just think it's so interesting. Before we officially part ways, is there any other pieces of advice or wisdom that you want to leave people with? It really is all just an experiment. I mean, day to day, it's trying to figure out how can I get happier, better off, more excited today than I was yesterday. And if whatever you tested, I mean, you're testing a hypothesis every time. If it, if it didn't get to you the results that you want, it's like, well, back to the drawing board, try something else. But it really is this process of continuing to experiment. And for me, that lessens the sting of the inevitable failures along the way. Whereas like, I, I, I 100% need this to work. It's like, I'm going to test this. If it works, great. If it doesn't, that's okay too. I'll come up with you know the next step and the next step. 
Oh, I think that's beautiful advice. Okay, before we officially close this conversation, are you down for some rapid fire questions? Okay, let's do it. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm nervous first... now. <laughs> I know you're like sweating over. You're like, oh, shoot. Okay, my first question for you. I personally am obsessed with people's morning routines. I just find them to be so interesting. So as a father of two, what does your current morning routine look like? Best case uh, morning routine is uh, getting up around 5.40, doing a quick kind of interval type of high intensity, usually body weight workout, kind of in the 15, 20 minute range, um, attempting to like empty the dishwasher from the night before. And then the kids are up and it's like, okay, let's get dressed. Let's get breakfast. Let's uh, get ready for school. Oh, I like it though. So you're prioritizing fitness first. I'm, I found I'm so much happier when I do. And it's, you know, since I feel like, uh, since Thanksgiving, like we've had disease running through the house and, you know, I've kind of been off the routine and I've just felt, you know, just, I don't know. It's, it's definitely a lead domino for, for my overall uh, happiness. I totally understand that. Um, I'm also obsessed with traveling. I find that to be so much fun. So where's the location you're dying to travel? What is next on the list? Like, I think that, uh, the Croatian coast looks absolutely beautiful. My wife doesn't want to go there until the kids can both swim. So we might postpone that one. Uh, I've heard awesome things about Budapest and kind of like this Eastern Europe block that uh, that may be on the, uh, the next destination list. That's so cool. Okay. I know you're a big reader yourself. What is one book that you find yourself gifting to people most often? Um, that's a good question. The one I actually gift most often is the progress journal, which is my own kind of like productivity journal, just because it's super easy it drop ships from Amazon. So it's like super easy to uh, just send over to people. One that I uh, refer people to quite a bit is the go giver by Bob Berg, which really helped solidify kind of a mindset shift for me. Whereas, you know, I started out in of a similar mindset, like how can I make how can I make extra money? How can I make money online? Right. I think we've all probably Googled that at some point. The go-giver will challenge you to think, who can I serve? How can I help people and trust that the money will follow? Like that shift has been really important for me in this kind of serve first mentality. You know, this, you know, pr try and provide helpful information first and then trust that you'll figure out a way to, to monetize that later. I think that's really good advice too. Okay, my final question to you. In your opinion, what is the secret to financial success? Spend less than you make. Bam. Like the really <laughs> I totally is agree. That, like, that, always side hustle first and then spend less than you make. I think it's that's perfect. I think that's a really good piece of advice. It's nuts. To read the data on, oh, you know, 40% of the country couldn't afford a, a $400 emergency expense. And you look, if we can expand on that, mm -hmm. the average savings rate, which I will use as a, um, as a proxy for like household profitability, is like 5%, meaning out of every $100 that your household brings in, you are left with five at the end of the day. You spend 95% of your money on taxes in, in a lot of cases, but taxes, housing, food, uh, debt repayment, insurance, um, all this stuff, you're only 5% profitable. If you can start to think of your household as a business, like put on your CEO hat or maybe your CFO hat in this case, 
and say like, what can I do to improve my own household profitability? And that to me is more exciting than like, I got a budget. I got to think of all this stuff. (laughs) Like, um, no, like, okay, I can cut expenses. Sure. But like, I could also become more profitable, right? Like if I could improve my top line revenue, like all of a sudden I got a little more breathing room, but kind of that CEO shift, that personal profitability shift has been really important too. I love it. Nick, thank you so much for hanging out. It was so much fun just learning about different side hustles. My brain is like spinning with possibilities right now. So I appreciate your time. And it was seriously an honor chatting with you. Thanks again. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, what'd you think? I love this episode. I think it's so interesting to hear how people make money and some of the tactics and tricks and tips and all of that fun stuff that Nick shared. That was definitely my big takeaway. The thing that I loved specifically was hearing Nick's story about going from his day job into the side hustle that led him into quitting. I always find that so fascinating to see when people make that leap and what gives them the confidence to make that transition. So congrats to Nick on that transition and his awesome podcast too. I mean, we wouldn't be able to learn from him if he wasn't willing to take some side hustle steps. All right. What was your takeaway? Let me know. I'm really curious. Tag me on Instagram at Whitney underscore Hanson underscore co. And let me know what you thought. What were your big takeaways? And more importantly, is there a side hustle we talked about that kind of spoke to you? Let me know. All right, guys, that is it for today. I love you. I hope you're having a great week and I will see you on Friday for five tip Friday or for another episode of the money nerds podcast. Bye.